millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Today we're looking at the emergence of the mandate system uh, at the end of the First World War as a result of the Paris Peace Conference and then the Treaty of Versailles. We're looking at a transitional moment here um, from the kind of the scramble for colonies um, that the British and the French particularly engaged in uh, in the first kind of moves of the, the, the Paris Peace Conference where really the, the the British particularly were looking to acquire places like Mesopotamia because of uh, oil uh, and Mesopotamia obviously becoming uh, modern day Iraq um, and the how the um, I, we're going to look at how external factors such as the uh, threat of the the new Bolshevik regime in Russia uh, and the pressure placed on uh, the British and the French by the Americans uh, and the American public particularly that had very little interest in becoming involved in imperial acquisitions and uh, sacrificing American lives for uh, British and French empires. We're looking at an amazing book by Susan Peterson called The Guardians, The League of Nations and the Crisis of Empire. Uh, In the section, The Emergence of the Mandates Plan, page 23, if you've got a copy, she writes, To explain how that wartime scramble gave way within a year to a plan to interest civilised, in inverted commas, peoples with benevolent tutelage, also in inverted commas, uh, of the rest, we have to look beyond imperial statesmen and their machinations. There is a reason for this. Faced with the Bolshevik challenge and an American public unwilling to fight a war for imperial aims, a vain and bookish president promised a peace of a new kind, a peace without annexations or indemnities, 
overseen by a new global body, the League of Nations. That Wilsonian moment, as we know, elicited a response that Wilson never imagined, with mobilised publics from Korea to Poland to Samoa, not to mention the populations already taking matters into their own hands um, in the Middle East, deciding that the President's stirring words applied to them. A great example of this would be the May the 4th protests in China. In China, there were, at the end of the First World War, China had not fought in the First World War, and the labour workers, uh, labour battalions had been, uh, of Chinese workers, had been present on the Western Front and in Russia, but China had not fought in the First World War, but there were huge, huge celebrations in November 1918 at the news that the First World War was over. Why? Because many people believed it was a war to end empires, and China had been subjugated by uh, European and then uh, Japanese imperialism for uh, almost a hundred years at that point, uh, and there was a, a, a great enthusiasm for a post-war order in which empires would be uh, dismantled, and by May of 1919, um, it became clear that the the new imperial power in China would be Japan, much to the anger of um, Japanese uh, of Chinese students, intelligentsia, and and, and others. So it, it shows you that there was this great surge in um, the uh, the hopes of colonised people around the world, and Wilson had never really intended this. Wilson had never really um, intended some some great kind of meltdown of, of all imperial relations at all. Um, uh, so uh, Susan Peterson writes, to fight the tiger or to ride it? It's enormously consequential that the British government decided, not for the last time, that they had no alternative but to be on the American side. Indeed, not only were British officials and intellectuals already fully engaged in transatlantic dialogue about the creation of a League of Nations, but when it came to the particular question of how to reform imperial practice, the British were out ahead. This was the case partly because British politicians were constrained by the same liberal political culture that both hampered and empowered Wilson. Unlike France and Belgium, Britain too had entered the First World War without being directly attacked, justifying the engagement as, as a defence of the rights of small states and the principles of international law. Parliamentary oversight and pressures for greater democratic control of foreign policy were strong and openly annexationist sentiments widely deplored. True, the African conquests were widely welcomed by liberals but only as a means of saving natives from the depredations of the Hun. Um, you know, the, the, the British viewed their colonialism as inherently benign. They imagined that uh, other imperialisms inherently malign and that the, uh, the best thing you could do for poor and fortunate people in Africa was to colonise them quickly before far worse Europeans got their hands on them. Um, of course, there's an awful lot problematic with that entire uh, basket of thought, but we'll come to that later. As early as 1916, the Anti-Slavery Society, the most vocal and well-placed of humanitarian lobbies, thus raised the question of how the child races of the world were to be protected at the war's end. 
And if the society found it absurd to imagine that Mandingos, Herreros, Polynesians, Fiat's fans, Kikuyus might sit beside Russian, French and German diplomats to decide their fate, one year later it had changed its mind. In, 19, in, in 1917 and early 1918 the society, the Labour Party and an influential slice of liberal opinion all came to agree that Africans should be consulted directly about their wishes on a system of international control established to safeguard their rights. So we can we can see transitions from um, di direct kind of 19th century style colonialism to the, the mandate system as a sort of interaction and exchange between colonialism and liberalism. Most thought these principles entirely compatible with British imperial rule. Ideas of imperial tutelage or trusteeship had long had a long genealogy, with the history of British anti-slavery cited as evidence of the empire's role in generalising humanitarian norms. One of the things that has always kept the British Empire going and has kept the British Empire still in the popular imagination of many British people as a, a kind of um, a, 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 as an asset to the world is this idea of a benign empire, this idea of uh, an empire who, that, that is a kind of a tutor to um, less advanced peoples, uh, an, an empire that stamped out slavery. And again, these are hugely contested concepts which we haven't quite got the scope for today, um, but we, will, we shall return to. Most, of, most thought these principles entirely compatible with, the, with British imperial rule. The ideas of imperial tutelage or trusteeship had long, long genealogy with a history of the British anti-slavery cited as evidence of the empire's role in generalising humanitarian norms. Securing its assumptions of moral leadership, British politicians were comfortable stating that, as Lloyd George promised in June 1917, the wishes and desires and the interests of the people of the former German colonies must be the dominant factor in settling their future government. Six months later, on the 5th of January 1918, in a speech given three days before Wilson's 14 points address, the Prime Minister confirmed not only that peoples of the Middle East deserve to have their separate national, national conditions recognised, but also that native chiefs and councils of the former German colonies were competent to consult and speak for their tribes and members. Such consultation was, after all, expected to show only a strong preference for British rule. The main problem uh, the British would face, on Foreign Office official remarked smugly, was that we cannot hope to take into the British sphere all the peoples in the world who would doubtless like to enter it. So that shows um, so, some uh, very revealing uh, attitudes that the British had. The, in his book um, The Morbid Age by Richard Overy um, he, Richard Overy writes that the, the, the view that British people had in 1939 was that uh, the Second World War was a, uh, a war for the defence of civilization itself civilization the, um, could be summed up as being the British Empire uh, and uh, barbarism was Nazism, the, the kind of the the enemy at the gate at the empire's gates. Um, the um, campaign medal that all soldiers were given at the end of the First World War um, was 
and had the inscription The Great War for Civilization written on the back of it. The Great War for the Preservation of the British Empire is the, the War for Civilization. So the the idea was that people in um, former German colonies um, who uh, would uh, German Southwest Africa and places like that who would become uh, British subjects or um, British mandates were joining the kind of this kind of bigger club of civilization. Susan Peterson writes this leads us to another reason why Britain found Wilsonian ideas easy to accommodate because they dovetailed so nicely with British imperial practice. British statesmen had always hunted diligently for native rulers with whom they could ally and trade. A preference for indirect rule marked um, the imperium at many turns. Various princes and potentates should indeed run their own affairs, guided by British residents or consuls and with the Royal Navy keeping with global peace. This was much the best and cheapest approach. But what imperial statesmen tended to, me, um, tended to mean by that was, as colonial secretary Lord Milner, who is speaking of Arabia, patently explained to Lloyd George in 1919, that the native state should be kept out of the sphere of European political intrigue and within the British sphere of influence. In other words, that her independent native rulers should have no foreign treaties except with us. Indeed, the Arab Bureau had been set up to extend British hegemony along such lines. But in the process, something unexpected happened. Some of those British officials began taking Wilsonian language to heart. Consider William Ormsby Gore, a young Conservative Army officer from an aristocratic family, seconded to the Arab Bureau in 1916. Ormsby Gore had found Egyptian politics discouraging. We rule here by fear and not by love or gratitude or loyalty. But his work building the alliance with Hussein, this is uh, Sharif Hussein of Mecca, convinced him of a new approach, that a new approach was possible. The Sykes-Picot Agreement profoundly shocked him. This was the division of uh, Arabia into French and British spheres of influence. Originally French, British and Russian, but after 1917, just French and British. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
We make professions of defending and helping small and oppressed nations, he protested to one of his superiors. If then we parcel out between our allies and ourselves vast tracts of countries which do not want us, we shall have to admit to the Ramsay MacDonalds, the then leader of the Labour Party, Trevelyans and Shaws at home, the obviously referring to George Bernard Shaw um, of the Fabian Society, um, and our doubting uh, Indian critics in India, um, that, um, that, that um, knew better than we knew ourselves. Britain should win friends by embracing self-determination and should do so, he thought, warm-heartedly, if not entirely logically, for both Arabs and Jews. Recalling, recall to London in 1917, Ormsby Gore became part of the circle that crafted the Balfour Declaration uh, and in sp the spring of 1918 was sent to Palestine with Chaim Weizmann and, uh, and the Zionist Commission to try to get Arab and Jewish leaders to come to some agreement regarding their respective rights and powers in future. I think what is important to, to recognise <coughs> is that this sort of kind of colonial chauvinism wasn't viewed by those who engaged in it at the time as necessarily anything remotely sinister or bad. Um, the uh, British colonial officials assumed that um, not only were, was it entirely correct that Britain should administer these, these sort of lesser places with you know inferior peoples but that that should be an ambition that should be shared by the people that Britain was um, colonising uh, through, through the mandate system um, and so the, the 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 Wilsonian idea of mandates, and the British idea that the British were a kind of a, a, a tutor, um, neatly kind of coincide with one another. Um, and of course, this is to uh, this, this is this to ignore um, how France saw things as well. But we shall come to that in due course. However, Britain never acted out of a, a spirit of kind of uh, benign selflessness, um, as Susan Peterson writes here. The British embrace of self-determination was often more cynical than that. The Sykes-Picot Agreement had been struck when the Ottomans were still in control, but by the end of 1918, virtually the whole of the Middle East was in British hands. Success bred greater ambitions as a host of policymakers began to think that the French might be pushed aside and the British Empire hold sway over a corridor of colonies uh, and native states running from India to the Cape. When Allenby held back his troops that December and let Faisal enter Damascus on a white horse before him, as with the British, um, as when the British officials read out the Anglo-French Declaration promising to establish national governments and administrations, deriving their authority from the initiative and free choice of the indigenous populations, they were making a bid uh, for their own hegemony as well. As Lord Curzon, then Lord President of the Council, pithily put it uh, in one cabinet committee meeting, the British were going to play self-determination for what it was worth to secure their imperial gains. The, for anybody that wants to read more about the uh, end of the First World War in the Middle East and the development uh, of uh, the mandate system there, uh, read uh, A Line in the Sand by James Barr. 
uh, and who has some really, really insightful observations to make uh, about the motivations of the British uh, allowing uh, the French um, to have the power that they had in in Syria, in in essence, uh, that uh, the the British were hoping that the the, the, the French would make themselves so unpopular in Syria that the, the Arabs would want uh, the British to install themselves there. Uh, but that's a, a slightly different conversation. After this potent bu- brew of liberal interventionism, liberal internationalism, imperial humanitarianism, and sheer territorial acquisitiveness, the British proposals for the mandate system merged. There was still no consensus. South African Prime Minister Jan Christian Smuts made one influential case for the British Empire as a model uh, for the League in his December 1918 pamphlet, The League of Nations, a practical suggestion. But Smuts' florid production was in fact an effort at containment, for he restricted international control to the Middle East alone. Since then, the German colonies were all inhabited by barbarians... Uh, this is his language, who not only cannot possibly govern themselves, but to whom it would be impracticable to apply any idea of political self-determination. So as far as Smuts was concerned, self-determination was something that perhaps Arabs could have, but definitely, definitely not Africans. The anti-slavery society thought otherwise, and even some within the colonial office were prepared to accept that the League should have the right to visit territories, terminate mandates, and adjudicate disputes between states. Indeed, if the League thought such stipulations should extend to all colonies, one official noted that Britain, at any rate, should have no no objections to raise. France had a very different view of how mandates should be uh, distributed and they viewed the mandate system as the product of a very cosy Anglo-American intervention, a very cosy Anglo-American compact agreement. Throughout December, right, Susan Peterson, of 1918, French officials watched the emerging Anglo-American alliance with mounting rage. To their mind, France had won its right to territorial compensation at Verdun, and Britain's attempt to change the rules of the game amounted to treason. France needed West Africa to provide soldiers in any future war, and the Quai d'Orsay, which is the French foreign ministry, um, at, at the Quai d'Orsay, Robert de Caille thought Faisal's new Syrian state little more than a British surrogate. But when French diplomats tried to get their British counterparts to come to bilateral to a bilateral agreement uh, before the Americans arrived, they found their erstwhile allies evasive and difficult. The British, having cast in their lot with Wilson, would use that alliance to force acceptance of the mandate system nobody else wanted. So um, France, uh, having uh, been victorious over Germany, now viewed a kind of an anglophone threat, uh, and and this has been kind of a, a a common feature in twentieth century French diplomacy. This kind of deep suspicion of the anglophone world and its priorities. The the idea that um, Wilson 
and the British had this kind of easy relationship. Uh, obviously, as we shall see, um, it turns out to, uh, to not be the case. Um, the uh, Wilson's kind of rhetoric around anti-imperialism did not sit well with the British, and the British, when it suited them, allied themselves with the French to undermine uh, Wilson's more uh, anti-colonial instincts. Wilson, of course, um, as the, the kind of the, the liberal figure he was, uh, still had uh, little time or effort or energy uh, to help black Americans um, in, the, the, in the South and had probably little real interest in helping uh, African, colonised African people. His, the language he used, the anti-imperial language he used, was really um, a, a deep-seated uh, resentment that kind of American presidents and diplomats had about the way in which the British and the French empires and other empires had carved up the world and cut America out of chunks of world trade. And it was that that America, that Wilson was really seeking to unravel. Wilson uh, thought that um, an end to the, the, that um, Versailles uh, could and should have been the means by which all European uh, empires were ended, partly out of uh, some idealism, but mainly because uh, a new American empire of trade would have emerged and did emerge throughout the 20th century, uh, gradually swatting uh, old colonial empires out of the way. And this was what Roosevelt, um, Wilson, I do beg your pardon, Wilson was seeking to achieve. Actually, my, my Freudian slip there uh, actually does de re reveal a deeper truth because Roosevelt, like him later on uh, during the Second World War, was motivated in largely the same way. And uh, it, but at the um, uh, the uh, Atlantic Conference, the at the uh, in Placentia Bay, the uh, when Churchill met Roosevelt on the the Prince of Wales battleship, the um, accords that the British and the Americans signed came to uh, the when it came to the moment of, of erasing imperial preference. That's where Churchill dug his heels in, and he saw that Roosevelt would quite happily have unravelled the British Empire then and there. Um, anyway, let's finish there. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. As you can see, we are putting out plenty of episodes at the moment, and there'll be some great interviews coming for you later in the week. Thanks very much. Take care, everybody. All the best. Bye-bye.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.